You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of Psalms. Here's Nate. Psalm 125 reminds me of a famous story in the life of Christ when he invited his disciples to cross over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee with him. They hopped into the boat, as the story tells us, and as they crossed, Jesus fell asleep inside of the boat. But during his sleep, a great storm came upon the waters. Eventually, the disciples in panic and fear woke Jesus and said to him, do you not care that we are perishing? And Jesus arose and he calmed the wind and the wave, rebuked them, and then turned to them and questioned them about their faith. And then uh, they arrived on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. In that story, Jesus slept, they feared, but they all got across to the other side of the lake. And the question here in Psalm 125 is, do you believe that God will get you across? And the answer to that in this psalm is a resounding yes and amen and absolutely. The theme, I think, of this psalm would go something like this. Though it is hard for us to believe, when we put our trust in Christ, he gives us an immovable position. This song highlights our radical position along with the peace that should flow from it. Uh, Really, I think that this is a song that encourages the believer to be at rest and to be at peace due to their position in Christ or their position in God. I think that there is so much self-trust and self-doubt and self-worry that we heap so much upon our own shoulders in the Christian life. But here, this song seems to celebrate the fact that for those who have simply placed their trust in the Lord, the Lord works mightily and powerfully on their behalf. So the first sentence reads in verse 1, Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. So, The song starts with a trust in the Lord. Now, it does seem that there's a difference between trust and belief. Belief seems to ask the question, what do you confess? Or who do you confess? Trust, though, seems to ask the question, on whom do you lean? Who is it that is going to get you through? Who is it that is going to strengthen you to the very end. Often in the Old Testament, this word trust is used in contrast with other elements that the people of God were tempted to trust in. Oftentimes, they would be tempted to trust in people, uh, whether it was Pharaoh or workers of iniquity. The temptation would be to trust in Egypt or a foreign king for their defense rather than trusting in God. Sometimes they would be tempted to trust 
a false god or an idol as when during the time of Elijah and Elisha they fell prey to the trust or the worship of the idol Baal. And oftentimes they would fall prey to the classic mistake of trusting in their own wealth or their own strength. So the word trust in the Old Testament especially is a word that is a decision word. Where are you going to place your trust? On what or on whom are you going to lean? Now for them, when they were trusting the Lord, that meant that they would conduct their finances in a specific way because they would give their tithes and all of that. So they would submit to God's tithing system. They would also submit in ancient Israel to God's Sabbath system, which included, of course, the weekly Saturday Sabbath, but also included different festivals and feasts and other Sabbath or rest regulations. And then also they would submit to God's marriage system, refusing to intermarry with the nations around them. And the reality is that though we're not under the same marriage laws that were more racial in that era, and though we are not under the Sabbath system or the same financial system, these big three areas of trust still remain today in the realm of finances, in the realm of the Sabbath or placing God first in your calendar and in your life, and in the realm of relationships or family or marriage. And none of these things, when they were trusting the Lord, would save them, but they all were a way for them to demonstrate their trust in the Lord. God, I trust you in my finances, or God, I trust you with my calendar, or God, I trust you with my relationships. Now, this song, though, is mostly about what God does for those who trust him. It really isn't a song about how to trust God or how to develop more trust in God. It's more of a song about those who have done it, who have relied upon the Lord, who have put their confidence in the Lord, who have hoped in the Lord. And that hope will lead them to look to God and the promise that God gives them is very clear. The first thing that he says here in verse 1 is that when you trust in the Lord, those who trust in the Lord, he says, are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. We have to imagine our pilgrim here climbing up to Jerusalem, seeing uh, Jerusalem in all of its glory and feeling that that mountain that Jerusalem is on, Mount Zion, feeling that it is an immovable mountain, just so established by God, and thinking in his mind as he traversed the path and ascended the hills, he began thinking to himself, wow, when you trust in the Lord, you're like this. You cannot be moved and you will abide forever. Now, when he says that, there's something prophetic in it. Because, of course, God looks at Jerusalem or Mount Zion as something that is immovable and also is forever abiding. And that's something that cannot be said about any other mountain in all of the world. Because when the 
heavens and earth melt away with a fervent heat. There will be a new heavens, a new earth, and also additionally a new Jerusalem. John saw this new Jerusalem in Revelation chapter 21. So in the heart and mind of God, Jerusalem, Mount Zion, is absolutely immovable and is absolutely eternal and forever. And so it is with the person who is trusting in the Lord. You are immovable and you are forever because God makes you that way. God makes you so. It tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 29 and 30, sort of a crescendo of sorts of the book of Romans, that we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son, that we've been called, that we've been justified, and that we've also already, in the sight of God, been glorified. All of these are mentioned in the past tense. They've already been done to us in the mind and heart of God. So God looks upon his people. You've trusted in me, he says. You are immovable. You are forever. Even when you don't feel immovable, even when you don't feel forever, even when you feel that you're standing on shifting ground, the Lord looks at you and says, you've trusted in me. You've trusted in me. You've believed in me. You've leaned upon me. You are immovable and you are forever. Now, here's why we are so immovable. He goes on in verse 2 to tell us that it's because God surrounds us. When you, when you trust the Lord, he makes you immovable because he surrounds you, first of all, verse 2. He says in the song, As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. Jerusalem here is an image for the pilgrim of not just permanency and immovability, but of God's surrounding protection. You know, he looks at Jerusalem and he sees that around Jerusalem is a circle of hills all around this beautiful city. And the thought in the pilgrim's mind is, you know, that's the way the Lord surrounds his people. These mountains surrounding Jerusalem are a perfect image of the way that God has surrounded us. So not only has God made those who trust in him immovable, but he has also surrounded them. Now, biblical saints in the Old and New Testament demonstrate that God surrounded his people in so many beautiful ways. And really, it has nothing to do with God blessing a perfect life. But it's all about God surrounding the life of his children. I I want you to think for a moment about three important characters in the Bible. Abraham, David, and Peter. Abraham, the father of faith. David, the one who received the promises of a never-ending throne that Christ would be seated upon. And Peter who used the keys of the kingdom to unlock the gospel for the Gentile world. All of these characters found God's grace. Abraham was just 
cruising along in Mesopotamia, far from God, not thinking of God, but he was called then by God out of Mesopotamia. There was something there, and God said, I want you to follow me. From you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And then David, also chosen by God, the eighth son of Jesse, taking care of his father's sheep on the day that Samuel arrived at his house. And Samuel said, we will not be seated until the young man arrives here this day. Chosen by the Lord, chosen by God, chosen by God to be the one who upon his descendant's throne would be a kingdom that lasted forever and ever. And then, of course, Peter, also chosen by the Lord, a fisherman in northern Galilee, a rough man. And the Lord looked at him and said, follow me and I will make you into a fisher of men. God chose all of these men and resultantly, God surrounded them during the entirety of their lives. Abraham had many moments of failure in his life, and he had to deal with the consequences of those many moments of failure. However, he never lost the protection of God upon his life. God was surrounding him all the way through. And even though Abraham failed quite often, God moved him along in life. David as well had many failures in life, some of them massive and highly immoral in nature. But God continued to move his life along. And of course, Peter, denying the Lord, failing in so many ways, but the Lord surrounded him and the Lord moved him along. And looking back upon all of their lives, it is so much less about what they did right and more about what God did for them. You can even see this, of course, in the congregation of Israel altogether. They had many failures, but God continued to move them forward. He was surrounding them, watching over them and taking care of them. As it says in Deuteronomy 33, verse 27, the eternal God is your dwelling place. So the Christian needs to understand and celebrate and remember that we are immovable because God surrounds us. God surrounds us. He's established us like Jerusalem and he surrounded us like Jerusalem or the hills of Jerusalem. And to celebrate that God has encircled your life. And if you have trusted him, then look back upon your life and see the faithful hand of God in working for you. He has surrounded you. And if you are going to start at this time and season of your life to begin trusting in him, then you must imagine someday looking back on the totality of your life from this point on and seeing the hand of God in encircling you and watching over uh, your life, surrounding you. Now, he goes on in verse 3 to say, For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Now, the land of Canaan, of course, was the land of promise. 
And he says that here, that God had promised it to them by calling it the land allotted to the righteous. So what the singer is saying is that because it's been allotted to the righteous, because this land is the promised land, God would not let the scepter, the authority, the kingdom of wickedness permanently land there. Now, in looking back at their history, we, of course, recognize that there were moments that uh, various kings would come and for a moment their scepter of wickedness would land upon Israel, but it would not be there forever. Tiglath-Pileser from Assyria would attack them in the north, but his power and authority was temporary. Nebuchadnezzar would attack the south from Babylon, but there uh, his authority was only temporary. Their scepter would not rest on the land forever. And it's important for us to remember that part of the reason that we're immovable is because God defeats wickedness for us. You know, when he says that, that the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land, that means that wickedness had no ultimate resting place on God's people. It might touch them temporarily, but not ultimately, not permanently. And, you know, you in your own life, there may be some elements of wickedness that have have touched you. They've landed upon you. Of course, there might be the kind and variety that has touched you because and due to your own invitation that you invited it into your life. You invited the sin into your life. However, it might also be that wickedness has touched you through someone else. I was reading recently the story in 2 Samuel chapter 13 of Amnon, one of David's sons, who lusted after a half-sister of his named Tamar. And he, through the counsel of one of his so-called friends, basically set up a scenario where he forcibly uh, took Tamar. He raped her, to put it bluntly. And she was, of course, humiliated by this. And, and she fled and she lived, it says in Second Samuel thirteen twenty, a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. I read that recently and my heart just began to break. Just thinking about Tamar, thinking about this beautiful young woman, thinking about this woman in the flower of youth with so much life in front of her, her father, the king of Israel, a godly man, and, you know, enduring such horror. And I found myself, as I was just thinking about this, saying, but but God has more for you, Tamar. I, I know that that this is a tragedy, and I know that you probably wouldn't wish this upon your worst enemy, and I can't even for a moment begin to describe or experience or imagine well what you faced and what you had, what you endured. But what I know is that you have a redeeming God who is able to take the ashes and the ugliness and the despair, and he's able to 
not erase them in their entirety, but, but resurrect them into something that can be powerful and, and beautiful. Oh, Tamar, I wish that this never happened to you, but I think for all of eternity we could rejoice together over the work of grace that God wrought in your life and in your heart in spite of the worst and ugliest attempts of man and the devil to destroy you and to destroy your life. Here we're learning in the song that that scepter of wickedness will not rest upon us. And then he says there, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do evil. What he's saying there is that the scepter has been defeated. You do not have to engage in in wickedness. Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 6, verse 12, which comes after one of my favorite verses, verse 11, where Paul tells us that we are to reckon ourselves or to consider ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God, just like Jesus is. So in light of that, Paul said, therefore, let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. In other words, there is a struggle for the throne of your heart. The word that is used here is the word reign. Sin wants to reign, but righteousness wants to reign as well. Sin is the challenger for that throne. And the throne is found inside of your, what Paul says, is called your mortal body. Your mortal body with all of its desires and thoughts and pursuits and experiences is under attack from sin so that sin can get the throne of your heart and life. And the way that sin wants to take the throne, he says here in Romans 6.12, is through your passions. That the passions of your body could deliver the throne of your body or your heart to sin. So what we're to do is to make sure that rather than obeying sin, we obey God and we obey righteousness. We must remember our deep and beautiful position in Jesus Christ, that I have been set free. I do not have to give dominion to sin inside of this body of mine. Sin does not have to be seated upon the throne of my life. Paul backed that up a few verses later when he said in Romans six fourteen, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. So we learn that, you know, with God establishing us and, and being for us, he defeats wickedness for us in part so that we can go out and defeat wickedness ourselves a little bit more to experience the freedom that Christ has won for us. Now in verse 4, it's a powerful prayer because the song continues this way. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. Now, at first glance, this sounds like a very works-oriented kind of prayer. God, do good to the people who are good, to those who are upright in their hearts. But any gospel believer understands that this is not the way that it has ever worked. God's goodness towards his people is 
always because of his grace and his goodness in our lives. I think about my own life in this way. Why has God been good to me? Well, it's not because of of my good, okay? First of all, I think about the good that I've done in life, and hopefully there's been some. My good, first of all, has only been a response to his goodness. So he initiated with me. He loved me first, and I loved him in response. And all of my good is meant to be a response to his great goodness for me. Secondly, my good that I've done in this life has been enabled by a new nature that he gave to me by his goodness. In other words, I received a new nature when I became a Christian. So he gave me the ability to actually have the possibility of doing good. Not only did he give me a new nature, but my good has been empowered by his goodness. So he gave me a new nature, but he also gave me his Holy Spirit where he has empowered me to do good works for him and in his name. And also my good has led to a good life by his design, which is his goodness. You know, to live by doing good things for the Lord is actually the best version of life possible. So all of that in combination, my good is only a response to his goodness. My good has been enabled by the new nature he gave me. My good has been empowered by his spirit, which is his goodness. My good has led to a good life. And all of that put together, and you come to this conclusion, which is so astounding, my good then unleashes more of his goodness. In other words, it's just crazy. I'm trying to respond to God for the good thing he's already done to me. He's given me a new nature which wills to do so. He helps me to do it by the power of his spirit, and it's the best life anyways. And still, when I do good, he then still unleashes even more good upon my life. It's just wild, the goodness of God. And so, in other words, I can never catch up to God. I can never catch up with his goodness. Paul said it this way in Romans 3.27. He said, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. You know, everything that I have, man, it's just all God's grace, all accessed by faith. It's just astounding the goodness of God. Now we close out the psalm in verse 5. Where he says, but those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. So you're immovable because God surrounds you, because God defeats wickedness for you, because God does more good than you do. But here we learn in verse 5 that you're immovable because to God, backsliding is a decided defection. You know, so often in the Christian life, I think we worry that we're backsliding. We worry that we're going to fall away. But we do not have to walk around in paranoia. 
because what he seems to be saying here is that for those who have fallen away, there's a strong and real turning point in their lives. They have turned aside to their crooked ways. It isn't simply that they're having some ups and downs in their Christian life experience, but a decision point where they've decided to walk away from God. Zephaniah 1.6 talks about those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 12 and 13, Paul said, If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That gives us an example of what is being said here. Look, you might be walking with the Lord, trying to trust the Lord, and have a moment of faithlessness in your life, but God will remain faithful to you, for he cannot deny himself. But that denial of the Lord, where someone makes a decision and says, you know what, I'm done with him. I'm not going to pursue him. I'm not going to live according to his word. I'm going to walk away from him. I'm going to spite him. When that kind of decision is made, that gets you into the if we deny him, he also will deny us category of 2 Timothy 2.12. So what he seems to be saying here is that God is looking for progress, not perfection. It's one thing to stumble and slip. It's another to consciously decide to quit God. So this should help us to remember that We are established. We are immovable, partly because it takes a lot for us to actually be set aside by the Lord in his purposes uh, in our lives because he stands with us through the difficulties. He stands with us through the ups and the downs because he is faithful. So all of that leads us to the final phrase of the psalm, peace be upon Israel. That's another way of saying peace be upon those who trust the Lord. Peace be upon the faithful. I take this as a priest exhorting the congregation. Look, let God's peace come upon you. Just chill, relax, rest in what God is doing for you. Like riding an escalator. Look, you might be walking and and climbing the escalator as it ascends? And if so, you make progress more quickly. And you also might be on the escalator without walking, and it's carrying you along. God is carrying you along. Unless you make a conscious decision to run the other direction, which will be hard, you're going to get there. You're going to get there. The Lord looks at you and he sees something that is immovable, lasting, and eternal because you have trusted in him. God bless you. Amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.